I want to go ahead and invite you to open your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 5. I'm going to begin there this morning. Uh, I want you to put yourself in a position. If um, you had two doors in front of you um, for the life ahead, and, and you're given the opportunity to choose one of those two doors, and one is labeled peace, and the other is labeled purpose, which door would you choose? If you had that choice in your life, to live a life of peace, of tranquility, of, of, of even, even maybe uh, contentment. But you had to choose against a life of purpose. Uh, I'm curious what, what we would choose. Um, this story, this, what I'm going to put before you this morning, means something different to me than it did a week ago. Because I, I realize some things that are happening in the context of Luke that I didn't pick up on before. We left off last week. Um, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, and it kind of demonstrated that a synagogue is not a large place. There, there were not mega synagogues. Um, not really. They were all small buildings. And we go from that to immediately, it says, his popularity grew, crowds start following him, and next thing you know, he has to push out in a boat and teach from a boat because of the crowds. What Luke wants to communicate between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is immediately his, his influence picks up. And people start recognizing him and following him. And it all comes down to one word. We talked about it last week, authority. It says, I recognize something in this man. He teaches with authority. Later it's going to say, look at what authority. He casts out demons. He has authority over everything. And they're attracted to this man. Now the thing is, Christ had just, towards the end of chapter 4, gone to Simon's house. Before Simon's calling. Have you picked up on this before? He's already gone to Simon's house. Why? His mother-in-law has a fever. It's something that seems serious. Christ comes and he heals Peter's, Simon's mother-in-law. And next thing you know, he meets him on the beach. He's fishing. Jesus is not a stranger to Simon. Um, I've always thought that he was. That he walked up and the stranger comes and he says, follow me and he follows him. That's not what happens. He's already been to his home. He's already shown grace to his mother-in-law. And now here they are standing on the beach. And I'm going to go ahead and get into the text. This is what it says, beginning in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, this is the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him, look at the language, listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Remember last time he sat down in the synagogue and taught the people in the synagogue. Now it says he sits down. It's assuming a position of authority. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to begin teaching the word of God, delivering the word of God. And then in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water. And let down the nets for a catch. Now what's interesting is in other stories like this, and we're going to come back to this, maybe the significance of what's happening here later in the book. But it's interesting in one of the accounts it says, man, you're, you're throwing your net on the wrong side of the boat. I need you to throw your net on this side of the boat. Here he says, I want you to go out into deep water even though you haven't caught anything. And let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, 
We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus, uh, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now this, this is, this really puzzles me in the story. Um, yeah, I'm just being honest with you with my reflection on this, my interpretation of this. I'm thinking, man, it's amazing. It's great that we, we caught all these fish. But what brings that? What is, what is it about that miracle that would bring Simon to his knees and say, get away from me. Look at all these fish. Get away from me. And I, I, I can't help but, but wonder what's really happening in the story is why Simon? Uh, Jesus, who is growing in popularity, going throughout the land, chooses Simon's house to go to. And I'm going to show grace to your mother-in-law. And now I'm going to come to you when you're doing your work. Here's the Messiah standing by your boat. Can I choose your boat? Can I choose you to show this grace to? And I can just see Simon saying this. Why are you choosing me? That's the, that's the impression I have from this text. Why are you choosing me? Why are you pursuing me? Why are you coming after me? I'm a sick man. There are rabbis in this community that would serve you better. There are people that are so much more qualified than I am, and I am a sick, sinful man. Get away from me. Why are you pursuing someone like me? And then he, and then, uh, it says this in verse 9, for he, he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. If you ask me this morning, people ask me sometimes, and I'm the most fickle person in this congregation when it comes to stuff like this. Jeff, do you want to go skiing this Tuesday? I I am never going to say yes to you, ever. Uh, Let me go home, think about it, I'll get back to you. I hate saying yes to anything on the spot. And typically, I go home and think about it and say no. Um, if you ask me to do something as simple as go fishing, if you ask me to do something as simple as go to a movie, whatever it is, I don't like to immediately respond to anything with a yes. When I do, I get caught in lies all the time because I don't follow through. So I'm careful. These men, on the spot, drop everything immediately. Everything. Everything. These nets represent my livelihood. They represent my identity. They represent my income. They represent everything about me. Drop it and follow him. Man, what about the catch? You just had this amazing catch. At least make good on the catch. At least go sell the fish. Drop everything right there immediately and go follow Christ. And I'm trying to think, why? How? How does somebody even do this? Not just Peter. James and John. And to show that this is something that Luke is emphasizing, it happens again in the next chapter. Look at chapter five, well, later in this chapter, verses 27 to 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, 
and followed him. This, this theme is carried throughout the book of Luke. And so this message that I'm giving this morning, if there's one thing I want to drive home, is Jeff is not being creative. This is not my message. This is something emphasized throughout the entire book. Let me give you some verses. These are all taken from the book of Luke. Chapter 9, take up your cross daily and follow me, for whoever loses his life for me will save it. Chapter 14, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. We're going to come back to that. Wow, strong language. Luke 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Luke 18, Peter said to him, look, we left everything for you. Luke 19, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, here I give half my possessions to the poor. (laughs) You're thinking, you're the first one in the book to say half. You know, everything I've got. This is a theme in the book of Luke. Everything that I am, everything that I've got, right here and now, I leave it instantly. I'm not going to go home and think about it. I'm going. I'm yours. Everything that I am. This is a challenging message to me. And, and the reason it's challenging is because, again, this is nothing creative. This is nothing that I came up with. I'm just trying to be honest with a message that's in the book of Luke and say, what is he trying to convey to us? What does discipleship look like for us? Um, nobody in modern history, outside of maybe Martin Luther King, has inspired me more than the five missionaries in Quito, uh, that lived in Quito, Ecuador. Um, they inspired me when I was a young man. They were part of the story of what brought me down to Quito in the first place. Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and Ed McCulley. These men, I want to tell a story not of the men. You've heard the story of the men. The story that has not been told enough is the story of their wives. And that's what I want to focus on in a minute. But these men got up and they gave their lives. And you just look at the writings of these men, the things that they said um, there's a little town, if you follow the Rio Negro in, River, in Ecuador, if you follow it down a canyon, out over the Andes, in through the jungle, it opens up into a flat area. There's a small town called Shell. That town is where the story begins. It's named after Shell Gas, uh, the Shell Petroleum. Um, they named the town Shell. And, and as they started to have encounters with the Alca Indians, there's about 27, 28 different Indian tribes living in the jungles of Ecuador. Uh, you've heard of the head-shrinking Indians. We call those the Hiveros. The Hiveros are not the most dangerous Indians in the jungle. In fact, they weren't even dangerous. The Alcas were feared by all people. They were feared by the other Indians. And when Shell came there, um, many of their employees uh, that were being massacred, there was one time where it was, where it was seven, another time where it was 15, this kept happening. And so the story of the five missionaries is not where this begins. They already knew of these encounters. This is what's happening. And Shell began meeting with the government of Ecuador, said, listen, oil, the jungle of Ecuador is full of oil. We have a serious problem because we can't safely perform our operations there. We're talking about seriously wiping out the Indians of Ecuador for oil. This is what's about to happen. The people knew that. The missionaries went into the jungle. They knew that these lives were in danger, that Ecuador was about to wage war, could wage war on the Indians for that land, for the oil rights, because of the town of Shell and what was happening. These five missionaries fly out 
to a place called Palm Beach off of the river. And they go and, and they um, initially they started dropping supplies and doing things showing that we're friends. What I want you to know is they knew that this was dangerous. They knew that these Indians in particular were killing anything that represented technology and the modern world. They knew that they were at war with that and the modern world was hostile towards them. They knew what guns were. And when the missionaries came out, they brought guns with them. They arrived at Palm Beach the second time with guns. And when the Alcas came out, Minkai in particular, they came out of the jungle with spears. Those men could have defended themselves. I'm certain of that. They had the opportunity to. They chose not to. That's what I believe. Either way, those five men gave their lives on Palm Beach on a river in the jungle of Ecuador. Um, that's a story you're probably familiar with. Those men have inspired my life incredibly. They sung a hymn together before they got on the plane. Uh, the hymn goes like this. Some of you might have grown up singing this hymn. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender, we rest on thee. In thy name we go. Yeah, in thy name, O captain of salvation, in thy dear name, all other names above, Jesus, our righteousness, our sure foundation, our prince of glory and our king of love, we go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Can you hear these five men sitting around a yellow aircraft, a small yellow aircraft, singing this song together, lifting up this hymn before they go on the short flight, just a hundred miles from Quito to, to Palm Beach. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise when reigning in the kingdom of thy splendor. Victors, we rest with thee through endless days. Um, you may have seen the movie Gates of Spl- Through Gates of Splendor or at the end of the spear. Um, this story has greatly inspired me because I think about these men that gave everything. There's a famous quote by uh, uh, Nate Saint that said, um, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep uh, for what, that which he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives that up. But the true heroes in the story, even though they are, are their wives And I want you to put yourself in the position where you are married and you have a 10-month-year-old boy, a daughter, a 10-month-year-old daughter, and your husband has just gone and given his life. And these five men just died, and these women are left with children, and they're left without husbands, young married missionaries. So what does she do? This is a... This is a picture of Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter, Valerie. This young woman, after her husband dies, three years later, after training in the language, chooses to go with Rachel, um, Rachel Elliot. They choose to go to the very people that killed her husband, not just to visit she chose to go and live there and raise Valerie among the people. Now that's foolishness. 
That's, it was foolishness for the men to go in the first place. That's, that, that's how the world would respond. That's how I feel like I respond in my own gut. Would I do that? And then these women, these women who lost their husbands. I don't know if you've ever known what it is to truly hate somebody. But these men were heroes in my life. And I thought I was going to follow their path. I was excited to go to Ecuador. I got to coach soccer in the very school that they worked with. I got to be a part of this community and to recognize this is what it's about. And in the wilderness, I was held up with a shotgun with Josh Markham with our backs in a river. And I know that experience. And listen, my heart was not full of love and sacrifice. For years and years, I dealt with hatred. Sick hatred for the man that did that. And what he did to children down there. I was full of hatred. And I can't understand this. She lost her husband. She takes her child and she goes to those people. And listen, a Christian community was developed in that village. Minkaye, one of the men who was responsible for killing Nate St. Jim Elliott and their friends. That man becomes a Christian. He said this. We acted badly, badly until they brought us God's carvings. Now we walk his trail. I'm offering it all up to you, God. I'm offering my life. I'm offering my husband. I'm offering everything that I am. And Elizabeth Elliot said this, the fact that I'm a woman doesn't make me a different kind of Christian. But the fact that I'm a Christian does make me a different kind of woman. Man, people like this, her story has not been told enough. Rachel Elliott, Valerie, who still works with a lot of those programs. um, Incredible heroes in my life. And I think if I were to be put in the same situation, where God really puts me in a position where I'm going to choose peace, or I'm going to choose purpose, what is that going to look like with me? Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.18, Now I want you to keep in mind, this is the man. This is the man we were just reading about, man, that he was called to leave everything, to go follow this Messiah. And he says this, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. God called you out of the shallows and into the deep. He called you out of the trivial and into significance. He called you out of our pride into sober thinking. And he called us out of emptiness into abundance. That is what the calling was. And the crazy thing in life, and maybe you've experienced this, I have not made that kind of sacrifice to experience the way I, I wish I, was, I could. But the truth is, you think it's a, a, a decision between peace and purpose, and in Christ you find what? Nothing but a peace that you never would have known outside of Christ. Nothing but, and that's what Christ promises his people, you give everything to follow me and I promise you it's going to be paid back to you tenfold, not only in this age but in the age to come. He's going to say, I'm going to reward you greatly. And so what I've got to struggle with in these verses and the challenge to you is we look at this and say, Jeff, are you really saying Give up everything I've got. Why is the language of Luke so strong? Go sell all of your possessions. If you don't give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. What are we looking at when we look at that kind of language? Didn't the disciples go and stay in people's homes? Isn't Luke written to Theophilus, a man that was pretty wealthy? Didn't they have clothing? The thing is this. They left nothing that was not negotiable. They offered it all up to God. 
Everything that I have is for his purpose. Nothing is left behind. I give myself entirely. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Not far from here, um, Leadville, Colorado, which I think is probably the coolest town in Colorado. Uh, Leadville, um, man uh, came into a fortune in silver mining. Uh, the Borden Estate was established ba- based on uh, uh, just just discovering silver, and, and they made it rich. William Borden, a son that grew up extremely wealthy, grew up in the home of, you know, back in a time when a million dollars was a billion dollars, he grew up in a home where it had that kind of money. And his parents, when he graduated high school, sent him on a trip around the world and he got to go experience Asia, and he got to experience India, and he went to all of these different countries. And William Borden, um, when he came back from that trip, made a decision that my life is going to belong to Christ. He went to Yale. And when he went to Yale, who at the time had a student body of 1,300, he started small group Bible studies. And would you believe this in a school like Yale? By the time he was a senior at Yale, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were involved in small group Bible study on campus because of this man's passion for what really mattered in life, especially in a school like Yale. What are we living for? We are the cream of the crop. We are the best of the best. I'm living to make a fortune. I'm living to make an impact in this world. But religion, Christianity... No. A thousand of the 1,300 students he has in small group Bible studies because there's purpose. And then his father dies. And he has the opportunity to, he's going to inherit the estate, everything. He's going to, he's going to be the CEO or whatever of the Borden estate and the company. And he refuses. And he decides he's going to give his life to mission. In 1912, he set sail for China because he was hoping to work there with Muslims. He stopped first in Egypt to study study Arabic for what he was doing. He wrote in the cover of his Bible, no reserves. I've given up my fortune. I've given up purpose. I've given everything, and I'm going without any reserves. And then when um, his father said, um, you no longer have an opportunity to work in our company, you need to make a choice today. And his friends were telling him, you're throwing your life and your opportunities away. He wrote a second thing in the cover of his Bible. No retreats. I'm giving myself entirely to this because of my love for the people of China. And then the craziest thing happened. He contracted cerebral meningitis. And within a month, at the age of 25, he died. And the mission was over. It was a failure. Except he wrote one thing in the back of his Bible. No regrets. I don't regret any of this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to earn, to to receive what he cannot lose. The grace in Christ. When Peter and James and John and Matthew are called. Immediately, they drop their nets and they follow. 
And they say, my life belongs to you. As a disciple today, your experience and my experience are probably radically different than that. That I grew up, like many of you, going to churches and singing songs, struggling with my faith, not knowing. And Christianity to me has always been a belief. Do I believe this or not? Do I believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Do I believe baptism is entering into covenant with God? Do I believe that the 66 books of the Bible are God's 66? It's been a belief system. And the problem is, it has to go from being a belief system to being a commitment system. It's no longer what I believe. It's, again, have I given Christ authority in my life to where everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I do in this life is for his glory and for his purpose. It's no longer what I, simply what I believe. It's what I'm willing to devote myself to. Heart, soul, mind, strength, belonging to him. And there's drawing a line in the sand where it says, God, I'm going to give this part of my life to you, but not this part of my life to you. Jesus is going to emphasize throughout the book of Luke, that is not discipleship. That is not what it looks like to be my disciple. When I am baptized into Christ, it's not an empty doctrine. I am saying something. I'm saying my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, my will, my dreams, everything about me, I bury right now into you and I belong to you. I give myself to you. That is what discipleship is in this book. And what I love is Peter's words. In all of this, I was redeemed from an empty way of life that was handed down to me from my forefathers. He found everything in Christ. He lost himself in Christ and found everything in him. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. When Elizabeth Elliot, and um, this is one of her favorite verses, when Elizabeth Elliot went and gave her life and her daughter's life for the people of the Alcas. When they went and gave that, she was living out that verse, I'm being handed over to death daily. Every day, and this is a personal note, I want you to know this, and I've shared this story with you before. Um, I, was a, I, was a very, I was an exceptionally dramatic teenager. And in my early 20s, when Melinda was dating me, she can tell you I was exceptionally dramatic. Um, I had a lot of junk going on in my mind, right? Um, that, that day in Quito, Ecuador, on Mount Pichincha, when for hours and hours I went through a very traumatic experience in my life. I have, from that day to this day, I have been a changed person. That happened when I was 20 years old. I have been a different person since that day because I realized something. 
Every day of my life belongs to God. Every single day of my life belongs to God. And if he snatches the life from my chest today, all I can do is say thank you for the gift of one more day in this life. My wife, I love her. I have to offer her up to God and say she belongs to him. I have to offer my job, my work, my thought, everything that I am. And I'm not putting myself before you and saying, look, good example of a disciple. No. I'm telling you what God calls of me. I'm not telling you what Jeff has been very good at doing. But it's a calling that I've recognized. And my prayer for you today is that you would hear, like Peter did, Christ pursuing you. Even though you don't feel worthy, even though you're the person that's going to fall on his knees and say, get away from me, you don't know me, I'm sick, I'm not what you think I am, I'm the wrong guy for this job, Christ is pursuing you. And he's calling you to a life of purpose that might not necessarily end up being a life of peace as the world sees peace. My God, I want to come before you and I, um, I praise you, not just from, for Peter, James, John. I praise you for modern heroes. Father, for Elizabeth Elliot, Rachel Saint, and the, Elizabeth, I, 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 for Elizabeth Saint and Rachel Elliot, for those that show us continually today, God, what it is to pour out your life entirely for you. And I pray, God, I know that it, does, it doesn't mean that for everyone in this room. It's not going to mean going to a jungle in Ecuador and giving our lives, God. But for every single person in this room, you have a unique and special calling. And for every single one of us, to some degree, well, to every degree, it means giving up everything, offering up everything, and saying, God, we are yours. And I pray, God, that you would guard us, protect us, and challenge us to not allow Meadowlark or your kingdom in Fort Collins to be guilty of halfway discipleship or just a belief system. I pray, God, that you'd call us into something way more radical and way more purposeful. I praise you, Father, so much for the gift of Christ and his calling in our lives that we have left, I pray, our nets, pursuing things in this world that are that are trash compared to what it is to find purpose in you. I love you, God, for that that message and for speaking to me through it. I need that. It's in the name of Christ we come before you. Amen. Let's worship our God.